Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And we are so excited to be back with you after our brief summer break. Uh, And part of what we want to do with our new format of seasons is to have more focused and longer discussions on various topics. So this fall, our topic is going to be Anglo-Catholic piety and devotion. Basically, we're going to be answering the question, uh, what does it mean for us to live out an Anglo-Catholic life? That's right. We want to move a little bit away from kind of the heady theological discussions that we've had in the past, which we think are really good and they've laid a good foundation. But we want to kind of show, at least for this season, a side of living out our faith and what does it mean to bring the ancient Christian faith in the Anglo-Catholic kind of tradition to bear on day-to-day life, which is, as we say at the opening of every episode, a very prevalent issue in modern culture. How do you live day-to-day faithfully? But before we jump into that, we we want to discuss what exactly is an Anglo-Catholic. Yeah, because it's become clear to us that, at least in the United States, Anglo-Catholicism is, is too semantically broad of a term. Uh, everyone calls themselves an Anglo-Catholic, while often being aware of the movement's history and distinctive features. Uh, And basically, it's kind of come to be synonymous with high church. But if you're familiar with the history of Anglicanism and Anglo-Catholicism in particular, you know that the high church party and the Anglo-Catholic party are are two separate things. Uh, So we want to be approaching things with the framework that, broadly speaking, Anglo-Catholicism's mission within the Anglican church was to reform Anglicanism from within to bring it in line with its broader Western heritage. So properly speaking, um, it took the seeds of the Oxford movement and brought them to flower in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Yeah, I think that's a good way to begin looking at it. I wrote an article for Anglican Compass that was released back in July, and this was kind of the the theme of that article, is introducing Anglo-Catholicism, and not trying to be polemic in the article, but saying this is a distinct family within Anglicanism from the high church party. So it's what you just said. Anglo-Catholicism, properly speaking, takes the seeds of the Oxford movement, which is a Catholicizing of the Anglican tradition. And they really bring them to flower in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So the Tractarians, the Oxford movement, this isn't properly Anglo-Catholicism as you and I, and as today Anglo-Catholicism thinks of it, but it's the it's kind of what sparks it and brings it to existence. And so in that article, it might be helpful if I just run through it really quick, I kind of bring up three places that we can think of what is an Anglo-Catholic. The first is kind of theological identity and what does what does Anglo-Catholicism bring to the table in all that it does? And so this was what you just mentioned a few moments ago. The goal of Anglo-Catholicism is to take what the Oxford movement started, this Catholicizing of Anglicanism, and bring it even further by bringing Anglicanism into conformity with the Western, meaning Latin, right. And it's good to note here, this isn't a mere capitulation to Rome, because becoming Catholic is the goal, not necessarily Roman Catholic. You know, we've talked about in the episode, and we'll talk more as time goes on, you know, we resist certain Roman Catholic innovations, specifically the papal claims and certain dogmas or certain doctrines they elevate to dogma. So that's kind of the overarching thesis of Anglo-Catholicism bring Anglicanism into conformity with the greater Western tradition. Where this kind of comes to play practically then is we can look at the liturgy. Anglo-Catholics tend to emphasize a little bit less the Book of Common Prayer as it stands, as like the gold standard of all great liturgy. We we instead look towards the Missal tradition, bringing again the Book of Common Prayer into the greater Western tradition with the introit, the gradual, the various devotions during communion that aren't present in the Book of Common Prayer. We still like the Book of Common Prayer. Don't hear us say that we don't. We just think that it's not necessarily the unbendable rule of what it means to be an Anglican. 
And, and the Book of Common Prayer itself allows for certain flexibility as far as what gets added and taken out. Um, Cranmer himself mentions this in the preface, you know, that, that liturgies have to be adapted and they can evolve and change and, and everything like that. So it's not as though it's a complete violation of the Book of Common Prayer either. Yeah, that's a good point to bring up. And if you're using one of the more modern books of Common Prayer, either 79 or 2019, there's actually a lot of missile elements what we would say these elements from the greater tradition of the Western Church that have were added in because of Anglo-Catholic influences leading up to revisions in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then another place where we see Anglo-Catholicism kind of unique and distinct from the high church tradition is that it brings devotional life into conformity with the larger Western Catholic tradition. And so this stuff has come up on the podcast before, but it's a good reminder. I mean, Anglo-Catholics are, are A-OK with invoking the saints, things like rosary, devotions to the sacred heart, even the immaculate heart, you know, even, even if it might be understood a little bit differently. We do benedictions and exposition of the blessed sacrament, things like this, that many people will say, that's very Roman. The Anglo-Catholic says it's very Western. And so that, we would say, is is kind of the framework as we're setting up a whole season based on Anglo-Catholic devotion. That's the angle we're coming from, is Anglo-Catholicism as understood and defined by really the, the there's kind of this golden period recently of Anglo-Catholicism, the first 50 years of the 1900s. And that that is where it comes to flower and birth, and it's still sustaining from that period. So that's what we're looking at when we talk about Anglo-Catholic devotion. So with that in mind, we can go ahead and start discussing kind of our first topic. And this topic, I think, is is helpful because it gives us sort of a hermeneutic by which to understand our day-to-day life in terms of piety. And so we're going to spend the next two episodes talking about the topics of fasting and feasting. So you could say that, that fasting and feasting really form the basic rhythm of the church's life together. So fasting is something that we do as individuals, but it's because we're part of the broader church. Uh, so it's not a, it's not purely individualistic as far as the practice is concerned, right? The individual is participating in the church. Um, so this is why, you know, we do do things differently during different times. So in their book, uh, Liturgy for Living, Charles P. Price and Lewis Wheel state, every unit of time is an occasion for meeting God, so that every time is a time to observe, celebrate, and participate in the great mystery of Christ, which we're doing by, by participating in the great mystery of the church. And if you've been attending our uh, Christ the Christian in the Church book discussion group uh, over the summer uh, by E.L. Mascal, you'll, you, you'll know there's that organic connection between Christ and his church. So when we participate in one, we're participating in the other. So the Christian calendar is a gem with multiple facets reflecting aspects of the sacrificial life of our Lord. Something that we discussed a while back, I think in our Atonement Theory episode, was that everything Christ does is sacrificial from his birth to his death. Um, And so um, we want to, as Christians, participate in those events. You might want to. You might think about this uh, in terms of the way that the daily office cycle is structured. Um, it, 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 I think the the life of our Lord is prevalent on multiple levels of the Christian calendar, but the daily office cycle is a really good example. At morning prayer, we focus on new life and resurrection. At evening prayer and Compline, we focus on rest and death. And then noontime prayer, if you do noontime prayer, is centered on our Lord on the cross since it's believed that he died around noon. So given the Christocentricity of the Christian calendar, we might say that Christ himself is the liturgy of the church. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, is that Christ himself has kind of incarnated the the cycles of time within the church. Uh, Alexander Schmemann, the great Eastern Orthodox priest and thinker, theologian of of the past, uh, he died in the 70s or early 80s, he said, all religion is attempting to overcome the problem of time. Time is a problem for man. Why is that? Because eventually you run out of it. It's ever slipping away. You can't get away from it. 
and every religion, pagan, Christian, Jewish, otherwise, everything you can think of, has been trying to give an answer to the problem of time. Well, with Christ, because God has entered into time in the incarnation, time no longer is an enemy, this ticking time bomb, literally, until your death and your ending and there's all this pressure to get stuff done. Time is now a gift. Time is now the arena in which we live out our life with Christ. And then when death does come, death can actually be sanctified and offered up as a gift unto the Lord. And then we're granted eternal life. And so time is conquered by Christ's death and resurrection. And so this is why these cycles of feasting and fasting, of season, of time, of morning and evening and noon is so integrated into Christian spirituality because there is a new set of time that has conquered what we would call kind of the old man's time. We're now in the new man or new Adam's time, which is the time of Christ. And so Christ completely fills and infuses our understanding of time and our understanding of what we do, when we do, how we do. Absolutely. So it might help to define our terms a little bit. Uh, Today, we're only focusing on fasting. Um, So what do we mean when we talk about fasting? Um, Because I, you know, different people from different traditions might have different ideas and different definitions here. So, So fasting, broadly speaking, is the intentional lessening of food. Um, and in the Christian calendar, we practice fasting during the nativity cycle as part of our observance of Advent. And during the resurrection cycle, we begin observing the, the fast during pre-Lent, the Jesima Sundays, and we ramp up to a full fast during the Great Lent. To fast properly means, as far as the Western church anyways, means um, one full meal and two small meals in a given day. Yeah, and those small meals, they're often called collations, which comes from a Latin word that literally means like snack. The idea is you get to eat one full meal and then these two small collations or small meals, they together do not equal one full meal. Right. And so you'll hear fasting and and there's another word that gets used adjacent to fasting called abstinence, but we we mean two different things. Um, abstinence occurs on some fast days, but not all fast days require abstinence. To, to, to practice abstinence means you abstain from flesh meat. So there's no beef, pork, or poultry, but you are allowed to eat fish. This is why McDonald's sells the filet of fish, by the That's way. That's right. If it's you because ever, they didn't want to lose Catholic business. Yeah, if you ever look in Lent... All sorts of fast food restaurants sell fish. But here's a fun trivia fact. I think it was like the 1600s. Whatever bishops were in charge of French Canada, uh, they actually allowed beaver to be eaten on Fridays. (laughs) Beaver was considered a a fish, not a flesh meat. And so it was allowed to be eaten when when the faithful Catholics were supposed to be practicing abstinence. So that's just to show you, this isn't to be legalistic. There's a lot of allowances. If you want to eat a, a beaver and you live in France, or uh, sorry, and if you and you live in French Canada, uh, go ahead. That's, that's your right. I'm kidding. Please don't do that. We're going to get another pandemic if you do that. <laughs> oh, man. Well, anyway, so yes, yeah, so abstinence is not the same as fasting. Fasting means lesser food total. Abstinence means no meat except for fish. Fridays throughout the year, but especially during Lent and Ash Wednesday, are days of fasting and abstinence. The days during Lent and also ember days throughout the year are days of fasting. So you're allowed to have meat, but you should only have one full meal and two small meals. Yeah, and, and it's, it's recognizable that this can be a bit complicated, a bit confusing. And so I would encourage you all, if you're interested in following kind of the traditional pattern of fasting and abstinence, to get what's called an ordo calendar. You can get these from the ACC, which is the Anglican Catholic Church. They produce the calendar that is used by the G4, which is the, the continuum, the traditional Anglican movement. And it has on that calendar, it has all the fast days and all the feast days, and it'll tell you. It just writes it in italics, real small, fast and abstinence, or just abstinence, or just fast. And so that's that's probably the most helpful way to do that. Are there days of abstinence that aren't fasting days? 
it depends on if you want to be kind of really traditional or not because okay. in in modern days most catholics will simply do abstinence on fridays rather than fasting and abstinence oh i see okay right, right, so right. Okay. but i think traditionally speaking you, there are days where you can fast without abstinence, but there are no simply abstinent days without fasting. Does that make mm. sense? Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. And it should also be noted, too, that um, if you have questions or concerns about fasting, the best place to go is your parish priest to discuss with him. So, for example, my wife is pregnant right now. Well, if it was during Lent, she wouldn't be required to keep the fast. Or if you're older and you're you know you need nourishment um, maybe you're sick or something um you're allowed to be exempted from the fast you know you know it's not like you have to keep it or else um so work with your parish priest um if you have concerns if you're a manual laborer for example uh, and you need to eat a good amount of food in order to continue working those kind of instances you should always just work with your priest and in fact i would say before you ever even begin fasting or, or practicing any sort of discipline within the church, always, always, always have a conversation with your priest first. There's always uh, advice that he will give. There's direction that needs to be done. As you kind of said at the beginning, Father Wesley, uh, these spiritual disciplines and devotion of the life as a Catholic Christian are done within the community of the church. And part of what that means is you just, you don't wake up one day and say, yeah, I think I'm going to fast for 40 days. Mm -mm. You, you need to be in conversation with your priest. And another fast that I'm going to point out is you've got the fast, the big ones throughout the year that are done. You've kind of got the weekly fast, which is on Friday. There's a couple Fridays that this fasting and abstinence doesn't take place, the Friday after Christmas, and some people don't do the Friday after Easter. But there's also another kind of regular fast, and that's what's called the Eucharistic fast. Traditionally, you don't eat anything. You can have water. You don't eat anything until you you take the mass on that day, or if you're not partaking until it's until it's over. Uh, that's been augmented a little bit. Kind of traditional Anglicans will say three hours before the mass starts, and now I hear even in more modern a, a lot of Roman Catholic circles, it's kind of one hour before the mass starts. But the idea is just simply some sort of effort of preparation so you just don't walk into mass and be like oh that's right i'm taking communion today there's an f scott fitzgerald short story where the uh, it's a catholic roman catholic family and the father is kind of severe and the son goes to confession on saturday and intentionally doesn't confess a mortal sin he, he's like a teenager he wants to see what happens you know and then he wakes up on sunday and is kind of nervous that he did that and so he decides to drink a glass of water because then he'll he'll say he'll for, he'll forget that it's Sunday. He'll drink a glass of water and then he won't be able to take communion. And so it's his way of trying to get out of it. But his dad catches him right before he drinks the water and reminds him it's Sunday. And it's a, it's a very interesting short story. That's interesting because I've always been under the understanding that water doesn't break a fast. I don't think it does now, but I think at one point. Or maybe in more severe circles. I don't. I don't know exactly, but yeah, that's true. Oh well, and and that's also another thing is that different groups of bishops throughout the world kind of do different uh, different rules, different regulations. So kind of a win in Rome idea. You just you look to your bishops because if you're trying to find one universal practice on fasting and when and how and where, it, it just doesn't exist. That's right. So that raises the question. I mean, we talked about what is fasting, but why should we fast? What, what are the benefits of fasting? So I think the first answer uh, is that it's biblical. Uh, we have a precedent for it within Scripture. The foundation uh, for Lent, for example, is our Lord's fast in the wilderness, which lasted 40 days. You can find that in St. Luke chapter 4. Uh, also, Christ's command in St. Matthew 6 that we not look somber like the hypocrites when we fast assumes fasting as a normative practice. And we also see in Acts a number of places, particularly Acts 13, that fasting does play a major part in the early church. So uh, simply for those reasons, it ought to be something that we uh, integrate into our own lives. If this is something Christ was doing regularly and the early church was doing regularly, then we ought to also be doing it regularly. However, I think... Typically, it's helpful to go beyond 
pure the Bible says so type answer. So what benefits do fasting does fasting bring us? Well, f- I think fasting helps us gain control over our passions through detachment and self-mastery. And the, the paradox of Christianity is that when we are detached, when we do master ourselves, we then are enabled to live freely, at least according to the Christian conception of freedom, which is a little bit different than our American conception of freedom. Not the freedom to do whatever we want, but the freedom to serve the Lord, to do things that are good and true and beautiful. So the goal of any spiritual discipline, including fasting, really is the reintegration of the person, right? Sin fractures us, it, it mars our divine image, um, and so the spiritual disciplines are a way of sort of putting ourselves back together with the power of uh, the Holy Spirit and divine grace. And I think that's a good point to bring up is that this is fasting, for it to be considered fasting, it really needs to be offered up as a spiritual exercise, right? If you're you're just not eating food and you go about your day normally and don't really give any thought about God or anything, that's called dieting. That's not a Christian fast. And so this is why the, the saints of the church have said that really to kind of sanctify your time of fasting, you incorporate prayer or almsgiving or other things that come together. So even though we're talking about this discipline kind of narrowed down just what is fasting, it would be bizarre in a Catholic mindset to think of just fasting without also a lot of other things going on. It's kind of package deal. And I think it is important too, the the motive matters here. So it's not to look better, it's not to lose weight. That stuff might happen because you are practicing fasting, but it's not the goal. The goal is self-mastery. And we should have said this earlier when we were talking about kind of what is fasting, is the church has historically defined fasting, and so has scripture, as specifically related to food. Mm-hmm. You're giving up things that are actually good, right? I mean, it, there's nothing sinful or wrong about eating meat or about not eating your meal, it, it, or eating a meal, I should say. And so... You're giving up things that are good. There's this common practice in the church, of, especially when we get to Lent. What are you giving up for Lent? And people will rattle off things like soda or maybe desserts or Netflix or stuff like this. Well, first, I think that it should always be centered around food because there's this deep connection between what it means to be human and food. And we'll actually talk about this more next time when we talk about feasting. Second, I, I think that... If, if what you're giving up is something that's probably not good for you to begin with, like cake, then you just shouldn't be eating that much cake to begin with. You, fasting is not about giving up bad things. It's about giving up good things in order to receive the best, which is God himself. Right, right. There is some talk in, in orthodoxy, actually, Miles, you'll like this, um, of fasting from sin uh, through Lent. But... It's not the, it's not something that replaces our obligations to fast. I mean, we should always be trying to fast from sin, you know. Yeah, and I think like, that's like more... it's not okay to just give up pornography for Lent. You know what I mean? That's gotta be <laughs> right. that's gotta be right. a long term thing. <laughs> right, and I think that's more by analogy, right? I think that's uh-huh. they're using the analogy of fasting because everyone understands it, and then applying it to your spiritual life. But by definition. There's nothing sinful about eating these meals or these foods, as long as they're done, you know, uh, in moderation. There's nothing sinful about them. Giving up, to, so to fast is not to give up necessarily bad things. And so that's what I try to teach my people for Lent is if you're having to give up, you know, Facebook and Netflix, maybe that's a sign that you shouldn't be on there as much to begin with. Right. For sure. Martin Thornton, uh, the great writer on English spirituality, uh, he helps us, I think, focus in a little bit on the purpose of fasting. He says, the whole purpose of mortification, fasting, almsgiving, and discipline is to replace concupiscence by tranquilitas, to reestablish harmony with people, creation, and God. So very much that reintegration that we mentioned earlier. By fasting, we are committing an act of self-sacrifice which for the Christian is significant, not necessarily in and of itself, but insofar as it's united to Christ's sacrifice by abdicating our self-will. 
So we, our sacrifice becomes significant when it becomes attached to his sacrifice, which is why in the Book of Common Prayer, it talks about the Mass as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, one that's being attached to the sacrifice of Christ, which we receive during the Mass. The right ordering of the self is very important because it helps us to fully embrace what truly matters. So Father Miles is right. We give up things that are good. Food is good. We need food. It's important. It's, um, there are deep spiritual connections in food. But we give it up for things that are more important. Prayer, the Eucharist, etc. Instead of temporal things. This isn't to say that materiality is bad. Or that it's evil because it's not those things are good because God created them but it's it's about helping us rightly prioritize our lives so we ought to enjoy the good things that God gives us but we shouldn't be beholden to those things at the expense of prayer or other spiritual disciplines or where they begin to become ends in and of themselves and so I can't think of a better spiritual discipline that many modern Americans should probably really take upon themselves than fasting. We live in a culture that tells us, indulge, indulge, indulge. If you feel it, if you want it, then you do you. To actually deny yourself is one of the few sins in our culture, so to speak. And so taking upon ourselves fasting, self-denial, what you said, Father West, controlling the passions, which is a very patristic type of phrase, having a well-ordered life of love and affection, this is this goes against the grain of culture. I mean, to just say to someone, no, I really want that cake or I really want that chicken wing and to deny yourself, you might think of it in the moment. It's, it's often very unspiritual in the moment. You don't have this rush of ecstasy and Christ doesn't fill your heart with all of his grace and love because you've denied yourself. It's actually kind of like, I'm hungry and I'd like to eat that. But it's, it's about the long game. You are training yourself to, if you can deny the chicken wing, then maybe when a serious sin comes across your way in 15 years, you have trained your soul to withstand and resist. Resist. And I think it cuts both ways, too. I'm, you're right. It, fasting is countercultural, but it, it cuts in two directions. It's, it's countercultural because we do live in a society of decadence that tells us to indulge, indulge, indulge. We have drive throughs we have Amazon Prime delivering things to us in a day, right? When we want it, we get it. But we do have a, a large strand of our culture as well. I'm thinking like the, the diet and health industry that do try and get us to deprive ourselves. But the, the motivation that underlies that deprivation is not spiritual betterment so much as the focus is on materiality. It's about getting your beach body ready. It's about dropping a couple pounds so that you are more attractive you know it's it's that kind of focus and so even though yes somebody who diets and exercises is learning a kind of self-discipline and that's commendable without the focus on the spiritual it's just as materialistic as the impulse to indulge yeah and so fasting teaches us another way uh, of rightly prioritizing ourselves, not to say materiality is bad or to say it's it's the end all be all. It's it's good. We should in, indulge in things sometimes, but it's not it's not our final end to do so. Yeah, I think that's and so. Really it, good. it situates us rightly in between those two impulses. And I think too, it should be mentioned that fasting and and really any of the other spiritual disciplines that are so important are as Martin Thornton observes, subsidiary parts of ascetical theology, which compose methods and disciplines which dispose the soul to receive the motions of the Holy Ghost. It is the art of cooperating with grace when we're doing these things. We're, it, it, and, and that helps us too, I think, realize that I don't, I'm not fasting in order to get God to love me or anything like that. It's not quote unquote works-based, you know, salvation. Uh, but it is an awareness that I am called and you are called as Christians to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so what does that look like? Well, it looks like a physician resetting bones, you know, 
popping and and that's often painful right when your shoulders out of joint and they have to pop it back in the joint that hurts but these kind of practices are if you have the end goal in in view necessary for us to get from here to there yeah so again i i think part of the reason that is is we are not just purely a spirit that we are these embodied spiritual beings, uh, the rational animal, as, as it's often called. So what that means is that our bodies and souls are in constant concert with each other. And so fasting, for y- your mind forcing your body to submit to a spiritual principle f- makes your spirit grow closer to God when done with the right uh, disposition, prayer, motivations. God rewards it with his grace. And so that is a very just holistic approach to what it means to be human, that we are, we, we just don't pray our way here. We're not the, who, what was it? Augustine was a part of the Manichaeans and it was kind of this Gnostic group. And there was, and it could go two ways. You could either be really, really ascetical, meaning like the body's evil, so beat it up and fast and hate it. Or the other way was the body doesn't matter. All that matters is spirit. And so sleep around, indulge, get drunk, because the body doesn't matter. There's kind of a middle road that our bodies and souls are intertwined. And so, yes, not eating meat on Fridays when done properly actually has an impact on your soul. 100%. So it might be helpful at this juncture to uh, bring the conversation down a little bit more into the practical. So what is fasting like? What are some practical tips and tricks that we might be able to uh, to offer uh, as priests who perform spiritual counsel for people? Uh, so I think first it should be said that uh, when we ask the question, what is fasting like, we can admit that it is often not pleasant. It often sucks, right? Oh, yeah. uh, in the moment, at least. It's, it's certainly not fun. But it can also be so incredibly rewarding uh, at the same time. So those days where you're fasting, it, it's like all, it's kind of forbidden fruit syndrome, you know? It's like, all I want is a really delicious hamburger right now. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's just it's just mean. I mean, I think that this is the way that Satan is trying to get me is that this happens on Fridays and what do people do on Fridays? They go out with their friends and you go out to a restaurant and you go to a bar and it's like, why can't that be Thursday night? It always ends up being right Fridays and Fridays are when no no no, there has to be this level of of uh, asceticism on Fridays. And you're like, "Really?" And then I don't know why, but it's always during Lent that all my friends who aren't really, you know, in the sphere of Catholic Christianity want to have parties and do stuff. And I'm like, we, we can't do this during Lent. That actually does raise an interesting debate, though, uh, because I know there are some manuals and I don't I don't know. I don't remember which ones, but there are some that say uh, Lent and obligations to fast shouldn't bar you from being a good guest. Oh, I totally agree. As in, like, if you invite someone over and and there's not a way for you to cook a meal that would meet your fast and their taste, you always give your way over to their taste. Or if you're a guest at their house and they're making burgers, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it can be okay to yeah. eat to the partake. burger then. Or, yeah, yeah, and I, I heard a story from an Orthodox priest. He's a friend, and he had another friend who's an Orthodox priest, and he was visiting with someone who had been in the parish for years and years. And Orthodox, they, they fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And he went over to their house on a Friday, or maybe it was a Wednesday, and he sat down and the guy had cooked hamburgers. And so he ate the hamburger, he ate the fries, they drank the beer. He said, that was really great, John, whatever the guy's name was. Now I would like to explain to you the Orthodox practice of fasting. And he explained it to him. And the guy was like, oh, I guess I kind of forgot about that. Well, that's fine. And then he got up, you know, he did his visit and whatever. But it was just like the priest didn't walk in and say, how dare you serve flesh meat upon my right. plate? It was it was gracious. It was kind. It isn't a legalism. It's, a, it's an offering that the church is giving to you to grow in your relationship with the Lord. Absolutely. Yeah. So perhaps that's our first uh, tip is uh, if you're fasting, don't be a jerk about it. No, and I know I was, I don't know why Orthodox priests keep coming up. I guess I'm more friends with them than some other denominations. But this other Orthodox priest kind of went on this rant against people of like, because they have a pretty strict fast in Advent, and it starts 40 days 
before Christmas. And so what does that always conflict with? It always conflicts with American Thanksgiving. And so you've got these kind of like new zealous converts to orthodoxy who show up at family Thanksgiving and are like, I can only have raw vegetables and, you know, uh, kale. And, and it just causes all this stink. And the, this priest was just like, oh my gosh, just eat your turkey. Stop being a jerk. That is not the spirit of fasting. If that's the way you fast, you've given up what fasting is about. But that reminds me of a, of a episode of the Liturgist podcast that I listened to a long time ago, which is not my favorite podcast. But the late Rachel Held Evans was on it, and they were talking about speaking prophetically. And she said speaking prophetically is not an excuse to be an asshole. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that's true of that's true of fasting too. I think that's true of all the spiritual disciplines, right? I mean, yes, yes. I, I think that often we think in Scripture that Christ is critiquing traditional spirituality of the Pharisees, when really what he's critiquing is their attitude, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing wrong with fasting and all night vigils and asceticism. There is something wrong when you use these things to beat people up around you and to make yourself look holier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Because he's he often practices these things. He goes out for forty days in the wilderness. He keeps an all night vigil. Uh, you know. So yeah. He's it, but he doesn't do it in a way that um, that makes him. He's not putting a yoke on people that's unnecessary. That then shames them for not keeping it. So. So for sure. So don't be a jerk. Number two, uh, don't bite off more than you can chew. No pun intended on that one. Um, but, but keep your goals within reason and within the requirements of the church. So it might be, and I've seen this before, uh, where people get very excited about spiritual disciplines. And so they'll commit to doing things like, you know, not eating any solid food for 40 days, something like that. Well, okay. Maybe you can work yourself up to that, but that is probably not a realistic goal uh, that you'll be able to meet. So don't go overboard, and this is why it's helpful to work with a priest uh, when you're uh, deciding that you're going to be practicing fasting. And also, kind of related to that is, work yourself up to it. So if you've just started visiting an Anglican church for the first time, let's say you were raised non-denom or Baptist or something, and you visit an Anglican church, and it's the second sun, second Sunday of Lent, your first time visiting, don't necessarily just jump straight in expecting to be an expert and expecting that you're going to remember all of the intricate details or that you're even going to be able to do it. You might need to sort of wean yourself onto the fast. And then finally, I think, pray when you're fasting. Because that's how you're able to have the strength to do it, is only through the power of prayer. Um, and so fasting really, you know, it's about, it's about giving up food in order to embrace what's better. And so go to Mass, say your prayers, say extra prayers when you're fasting, because you, you'll need it. And then probably the final word that I would add is that grace abounds. If you mess up, if you struggle, if you fail... Well, then let me be the first to tell you that I don't know anyone who's kept a perfect Lenten fast. There's always these moments where we mess up and we lapse. We're all on this journey together. And there's this beautiful, short, tiny homily written by John Chrysostom that's, that's read at, in, the, in the Orthodox Church. Gosh, they keep coming up. It's read in the Orthodox Church every Pascha, which is Easter. So at their big Easter vigil... It, it comes up and they read this every year. And it's and what John Chrysostom says in essence is, if you've been fasting since the first day of Lent or you've only come at the 11th hour, this feast is for you. And so there is grace in the midst of this fasting. It is a, it is a journey of growth and progression and love of God. So definitely, definitely you should be fasting, but start small. It's like learning to walk. You don't start out sprinting. You wobble, you fall, you get back up again, but eventually you walk, and then eventually you can run, and then eventually you can sprint. Very good. Very good. So we have a new segment that we'd like to introduce as part of our new season. We have a very good friend uh, named Father Creighton McElveen, who is a deacon at St. Barnabas in Dunwoody, Georgia. Uh, He's been on the show before. He talked to us about Holy Week liturgies a while back. He's got a wealth of knowledge when it comes to Anglo-Catholicism, and so we wanted to tap into that and figure out the best way to, to get it to you. 
So we've decided to give him three to five minutes at the towards the end of every show to provide us with some quick information about something from Anglo-Catholic history, tradition, or liturgy. And we're going to call this segment Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner. So let's send it over to our man on the ground, Father Creighton McElveen. Welcome to the first ever Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner, where we talk about everything Anglo-Catholic, from devotion, humor, poetry, liturgical ephemera, and everything in between. I'm your host, Creighton McElveen, and today's conversation is going to be about lace. Now, there's an old adage that says there are far too many who wish to be called father, but dress like mother. I know that's a funny phrase, and it's meant to criticize the wearing of lace albs and surplices or cottas, but I think there's something important about lace that we need to draw out. Now, the first thing about lace is practical. If a priest is going to be wearing a cassock, and then an alb, and then a chasuble, things get hot. So lace being introduced to vestments, specifically the alb and the surplice, might have been introduced for the sake of lightness or coolness. Now the other aspect is much more important. That other aspect is beauty. As Catholics, we worship God in the beauty of holiness. We can see this all over the place. When we talk about our liturgy, we talk about the language being beautiful. The language is crafted to bring us into a greater sense of worship, a greater sense of the transcendent. We build our churches in such a way to emphasize that fact. We have beautiful stained glass windows, beautiful statuary, maybe beautiful paintings on the walls. Our architecture seems, in many ways, to be from a different age. All of these things go into creating an atmosphere of adoration, an atmosphere of worship. Vestments are the exact same. There are symbolic and theological reasons for wearing vestments. Those go back to the Old Testament, and they're developed over time to show the church what beauty looks like. So the alb and the surplice, or the kata, developed along those lines. So we see, in history, the addition of lace. Lace is a beautiful addition, a beautiful ornamentation, to the church's vestments. It's also symbolic of the amount of effort and care being put into the worship of God. Before machines could make lace quickly and cheaply, it represented something of a luxury. It was expensive, it was hard to make, it was intricate, it was handmade. It represented hours and hours and hours of care. When it became available, it started being used by kings and princes, dukes, anyone who could show that they had something beautiful or luxurious. But what I think is fascinating is that the church takes that, takes something expensive, beautiful, made with care, and offers it up to God. The things that apparel our liturgy, the visual, sensory developments of our liturgical worship of God, point us to a greater reality. So lace, in some sense, points us to God's greatness, points us to God's majesty. It's not something pretty to be worn, it's something beautiful to be offered. So theology aside, let's talk about some more mundane things. 
Now, if a priest is wearing lace and he has a deacon and servers, should lace match or should they be different patterns? Now, I have OCD and I like things to match and to look nice, so I would err on the side of if you're going to have lace, it should match. I would also recommend that maybe as a theological and liturgical point, that lace not be worn during penitential seasons. Seasons like Lent. On those days, we pare everything back, not to downplay transcendence or beauty, but to make a visual, material point about the solemnity of the day. So maybe lace can occupy a space of celebration and festivity, whereas a plain alb or a plain surplus or kata can show us that there are days in which we fast and make us look forward to the days in which we feast. Now, I want to share a funny poem written by a famous Anglo-Catholic named E.L. Maskell. Now, I'll share this full poem at another point, but I think it, it's interesting. It's fun. He said, My alb is edged with deepest lace, spread over rich black satin. The Psalms of David I recite in heaven's own native Latin. Now, we'll unpack some of that fun poem later on in another installment of Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner. But I think it's important to note that we worship God in the beauty of holiness. We make a point. What we do, what we wear, and what we say all match, and they're all offered up to the glory of Almighty God. That being said, Remember the old adage, more lace, more grace. <laughs> Thanks, Creighton. Now we go into the, the familiar segment that we all know and love, uh, what we're into. So, Father Miles, what are you into lately? So, I have been into another murder mystery show that's British, and it's Broadchurch. It's actually an older oh, show. So good. It is good, and it's one that Liz watched on her own a number of years ago, and so that's kind of... She had already watched it. We normally watch TV together, but she'll watch some shows on her own, and so I just never got around to it, and so we had kind of run out of our shows, and we didn't know what to do, and I said, why don't we do Broadchurch? She said, yeah, yeah, it's been a while. I don't really remember some of it, and I remember it being good. It's really good. So what I think is interesting about Broadchurch is so many murder mystery shows are kind of one, maybe two episodes of a story. You know, there's underlying things with the main characters, but the whodunit part is one episode. You know from the beginning to the end who the murder is. Well, I'm about halfway through Broadchurch. It's three seasons, and the first season is about one murder case and who did it. The second season is about the trial. And is this guy going to get convicted? And then the third season, well, stay tuned. I'm not sure what it's about yet. But I really like it. I think it's got some really good acting. And as always, these British BBC shows are just showing America up when it comes to uh, procedure and law enforcement type shows. That is a fantastic show. We It's been a few years since we've watched it. It might be worth revisiting at some point. I am into a film uh, called First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke, uh, and it's about a pastor of a historic Congregationalist parish in New York State, and he's kind of going through a dark night of the soul, uh, and he encounters a, a parishioner and her husband, uh, her name's Mary, her husband's name is Michael, and Michael's an environmentalist activist. And uh, he's, he's kind of circling the drain of, of nihilism. And so he, uh, the pastor goes and has a conversation with him, and they're going to have a follow-up, and then Michael um, commits suicide. Uh, and um, Michael's wife and, and the pastor find a, a suicide vest that he had been working on um, to make a statement, a political statement. And so uh, the whole rest of the movie is really about the pastor kind of getting infected with the same kind of nihilism uh, that that the parishioner had uh, before he killed himself. 
And um, and but it, but it, it's an interesting movie, and it makes some really profound statements, I think, about the nature of grace and how it operates. Uh, and so anyway, so I wrote an article about it. I'll maybe we can post that in the show notes. It'll be out by the time this episode's out. Um, but yeah, so it was a really interesting movie, and and definitely one that I woke up the next morning and was still really thinking about, especially the ending of the film, which is always a good sign when you know when it's making you think when you wake up. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, hey, if you like what we're doing, uh, help other people find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and share us with your friends. If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can follow us on Twitter and join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. And you can also now support The Sacramentalists over on Patreon for just $5 a month. You can join the communion of Patreon saints. And you can also email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalists at gmail.com. We thought to end episodes this season that we would change it up just a little bit. Instead of doing the normal blessing that we do from the Book of Common Prayer, we thought uh, we would, over this episode and next episode, do the Litany of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Father, the Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. God, the Father of heaven, have mercy upon us. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us. God, the Holy Ghost, have mercy upon us. Holy Trinity, one God, have mercy upon us. Heart of Jesus, dwelling in solitude, have mercy upon us. Heart of Jesus, enclosed in the womb of Mary, have mercy upon us. Heart of Jesus, reposing in the bosom of the Father, have mercy upon us. Heart of Jesus, lover of retirement, have mercy upon us. Heart of Jesus, haven of repose, have mercy upon us. Heart of Jesus, ever watching over thy elect, have mercy upon us. Heart of Jesus, detached from the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, spare us, O Lord. Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, hear us, O Lord. Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. I will lead the soul into solitude, and there I will speak to her heart. Let us pray. Adorable Savior, who didst love solitude, we beseech thee to inspire our hearts with the love of retirement, so that, withdrawn from the tumult of the world, we may hear the sweetness of thy voice in the silence of creatures and faithfully correspond with the whisperings of thy heart and the inspiration of thy love, who livest and reignest world without end. Amen. Amen. Amen.